0: At what
1: point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the
0: male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the second reading podcast for the week of December 1st, 2020. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm joined this week by Josh Blank, Research Director of the same Texas Politics Project, and we took last week off for Thanksgiving, uh, for those of you that were looking for it. Yeah,
1: (laughs) crickets. listening to
0: the silence out there. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, there was no warning. I'm not really sure how we would have done that, but we're back after Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, You know, some much-needed rest on my part. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah, for sure. It started by
1: not recording this last week.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we start, we started early on the rest. <laughs> um, so uh, so this week, Josh and I've kicked around a couple ideas going into this, but it, you know, this morning I moderated a panel for the professional advocate, the Professional Advocates Association of Texas, I believe, for Pat. And if you're out there and I've scrambled the two A's, I'm sorry to Jack and Allison and everybody over there, but I believe that's correct. Um, and it was a, a kind of a pivot, you know, as, as there will be many of these. It was a panel pivoting from uh, the election to the coming legislative session here in Texas, but. Um, Interestingly, we were able to tune in early, and what we want to use is a little bit of the hook here, even though we'll probably touch on some things that came up in that conversation that I had with uh, Scott Braddock, Gromer Jeffers, and Ross Ramsey. Um, before our panel, the, the, the probably money shot for the participants there uh, was administration chairman and longtime House member Charlie Guerin, who talked quite a bit about the, the sort of state of discussion in preparation for the legislature to operate when they come back in session in January, and there was a lot of stuff that was interesting about this. Now we should, you know, say at the outset so as not to to get Charlie in trouble. Not that we're capable of getting Charlie in trouble, but to misrepresent the discussion. When you say
1: that, I my heart beats fast. Just <laughs> uh, for Representative no Garen
0: I should say, um, <laughs>
1: yeah, Chairman Garen I believe.
0: Chairman Garren, I believe. <laughs> Her, yes. Um, <laughs> What we want to sort of underline here is that this was all sort of, you know, an update on stages of discussions. And the chairman was very clear to say that there was no no decisions had been made. But this is what they thought was going on. Some, you know, obviously some preparations have been have been implemented in terms of some of the things we've seen at some of the committee hearings and meetings. But all that said, uh as an update on the state of discussions, there were a lot of things that really struck out, uh, stuck out, I think. One was, you know, I, I think the idea that in the House, at least, uh, there would probably be mandatory testing for people that were going to, uh, it sounded like, come in the chamber or come in, you know, participate in the process, right?
1: Right. So, some kind of mandatory As testing. As I heard the, that. The speci- yeah, the specifics of it, not, not necessarily clear yet. Right. Like I said. In, in, in development.
0: You know, I think another thing that, that, that struck out and, and and you and I were talking about how we were comparing this to some of the results that we saw in the survey that the House administration did, I think almost certainly in conjunction with the Speaker's office during the summer in which I think about three quarters of the members that responded to that survey said that they would support mandatory testing of members, mm-hmm. you know, to come yeah. into the building to be part of the process. Um, but there were also you know, there's also a lot of discussion in, in, in what the chairman had to say about what limitations there would be. And it sounded like probably, you know, I think the thing that certainly in the panel that I then moderated made all the reporters prick up their ears was the fact that they would not be uh, allowing press into the chamber or the back hall mm-hmm. um, and that the chamber in the back hall would likely, as I heard it. Be open to members and limited staff only. Now,
1: yeah, I mean, they t- maybe using that as like an impromptu members lounge or something. With yeah, using the back hall. Of, yeah,
0: using the back hall for that yeah. way. And then there was, and then it was a little unclear to me. And I think I, I need to go back and see if we can if we can see that video. Um, what you know? The, it seemed like the reporters had heard, and I, I was going you and I didn't talk about this. That press might be able to get into the gallery, but not on the floor. Well, but that was sounded even like the gallery, but, the, but but I didn't hear that. I think Ross seemed to hear that, but I did not.
1: See, and I thought I heard the opposite. I thought I heard that they were actually going to keep the gallery clear, potentially
0: even. Right. And then it might be for, 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 it might be for might so be. we'll have to go back and check that.
1: I mean, the overarching thing here, I think to, to point out is if, you know, if you were going into this thinking, boy, you know, is the Texas house going to take the approach of, you know, it's the people's house, let everyone in, you know, everybody take your own precautions versus something more of a, you know, a bubble ish scenario. And it's not a bubble right. at all, obviously, but something with a lot more rigor around it. It seems to be leaning much more towards the more rigorous approach. To the pandemic, right. you know, not the most rigorous, but but a lot more rigorous than not is what it's sounding like.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And and so I think that, you know, and then, yeah, you know, there are a couple of things that were interesting about that, I think, was that, you know, the use of technology. Um, it sounds like everybody's getting a Chromebook and that they are exploring the institutional constitute institutional slash constitutional slash legal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> space for, you know, members not voting from their desks. Well,
1: I think that's important voting in the chamber. You know, he brought up something, you know, I thought that was really just very crystal clear, which is, you know, they don't want to get to the end, get through a budget certification and then have somebody challenge the budget and have it be struck down as unconstitutional because of how they did it. But what that also tells you is that they're thinking about what are, what are the extent of the limitations that are allowed under the Constitution that will allow them to practice the session safely? And that's really, I mean, again, in terms of orientation, I mean, I think that's telling you, that's what the orientation of the House is right now. Is it's really about what are the boundary limits, not so much about like, where do I get to some ideal point, you know, normatively?
0: Right. Well, and, and I think Chairman Guerin raised the point that, you know, some some substantial number of the members are, you know, 60 or older. So there is a... There are a lot of people at risk here, mm-hmm, um, and I think all of that is is halfway, you know, not halfway. A lot of that is is clearly reasonable and clearly the kind of public health considerations that that we've been seeing elsewhere. I I think it's interesting, given, you know, not to jump ahead, but you know, it's interesting given the public discussion and given the differential, yeah, responses to the pandemic, <laughs> shall we say, among different members. That when it, you know, and, and I think we pointed this out when we looked at the survey, that when it, you know, it comes to the chamber itself and to the members themselves, you know, some of the, the public skepticism that we've seen about overreaction to the pandemic seems not quite as predominant, shall we say.
1: We'll put a pin in that. We can, we can, I think we that's could, fair. We can, come, we
0: can come, we can come to that. Let's,
1: maybe we'll stick with, with the institution.
0: <laughs> yeah, question. no, sure. I, I I think, yeah. So one of the things that we were, you know, that we were noticing when we decided to talk about this is that, you know, as tentative as this discussion is, it does raise the fact that there are a lot of institutional questions at play that are broached by the legislature's need to respond to the pandemic. And I think, you know, this has been floating around out there for quite a while, but now that, you know, the reasonable, if seemingly pessimistic predictions that
1: mm-hmm.
0: we were going to have a worsening of the pandemic conditions in, you know, winter and spring in, in fall and winter have come to pass. It's really made these questions much more, you know, much more present and much more urgent. And, you know, I think, you know, as, as with a lot of stages of this pandemic, there's been a lot of peers where people say, well, you know, maybe it'll get better. Well, it's not getting better. <laughs> yeah. And it's certainly right. not gonna be in better, you know, get get be better in time for the pandemic or or for the session. So so I think, you know, among these institutional questions, what really stuck out to you? You know, take your pick.
1: <sighs> hmm, take my pick. Well, you know, it's a tough one. I think, you know, I mean, obviously the first one I would just say is, you know, as someone who is not involved in the process personally myself, but as an observer of the process, I think about, you know, what impact the lack of press access is going to look like on, you know, I would just say our general public understanding of, of the process. You know, I'd say mine, you know, in some ways, although we have other people that we talk to to kind of find out what's going on and learn about how, you know, again, some of the inside machinations and things like that. But I think, you know, generally, you know, as someone who's really interested in sort of the public perception of the process and the public Uh, perception of, you know, let's say the ability of the legislature to address, you know, the important issues that they're going to have to deal with, which we'll get to, you know, this sort of press kind of being on the outside, looking in watching, you know, the legislature from their couches over uh, the tech sledge live stream is, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what effect that has. I mean, I, I think just, I mean, just in a, in a global sense, in terms of like our overall understanding of the process, but also even the breadth of coverage you know, I mean, ultimately, are we going to see a lot more? You know, we talk, we call that like hurting in journalism. You know, essentially, this idea that you know we're going to cover. you know, If somebody covers a story, we're all going to cover this story. I wonder if there's not going to be more of that, given you know, on the one hand, maybe a, a smaller agenda, maybe, but we'll get to that. But on the other hand, again, this 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 lessened access. I don't know. What about you?
0: Well, you know, as you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that are that are interesting here. I, you know. One of the things I said in the in the in the panel for Pat was that, you know, I mean, as you as I was sitting and listening to Chairman Guerin talking about these different things they're they're putting in place and, you know, a couple other things we haven't mentioned. I mean, the idea that it's going to be basically up to offices, individual legislative offices, what their entrance policy is, you know, can you come in? Do you have to wear a mask to come in? You know, how are you going to make appointments? Are you going to take appointments at all? What, you know, how is that all going to work? That is, you know, as well as issues like the press, as you're talking about, as well Mm -hmm. as, you know, regulating public access, just who can come in and see the process, who can be in the building. All of that, I I just think of it as like as a new set of filters on the process and how, you know, what are the implications of that? You know, I mean, we are used to being able to just, I mean, not that everybody does this, but you know, for the organized interest groups, Mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be no more capital, you know, there won't be count, you know, from the sound of it, you know, there won't be capital days, right? There won't be days where the, where the interest groups organize their people and give them all the same color shirts and they travel around in a pack and then go visit offices. Um, you know, for people like us, you know you can't just say hey you know it's going to be a good afternoon to go down and sit in a committee hearing or go down and right. and sit in the gallery and kind of watch what's going on there aren't going to be any school visits and watch but what's going more, on off, you know, off camera right at, at a at a more yeah and watch what's going on kind of away from the ball you know Right. Um, you know the fun in a stuff. more you know professional kind of you know view of things you know this is really going to scramble how the organized advocates in the system, you know, the lobby, you know, the public interest groups, even the grassroots groups, you know how they, you know, how they strategize, how they interact, how they shape the process, and and so, you know, I think if you take your average, you know, interest group that has been, you know, you know, you know take your. Take your pick of the big major interest groups, and I don't want to single anybody out, at least not yet. My mood may change. But, you know, pick a big interest group and say, okay, so, like, what are their assets? You know, it's a its a lot of lobby. You know, if it's a lot of lobby people that can blanket and hit 80 offices in a morning because they have a big lobby team and they have access to those offices, well, how does this change that? Yeah. You know, if your advantage is you have a bunch of people that were former staff people and understand how the process works and can get into offices, well, you know, does that mean they can't anymore? Probably not, but it does mean that that will be throttled. You know, that that will be throttled.
1: Well, I'll say, you know, you, you said something that actually reminded me. You know, when we were having this conversation about what the capital looked like back uh, when we were looking at the results of that House Administration survey. You know, there was a lot of discussion going on about this idea that every office might just have its own policy. Like, you know, in the sense, the I remember now the questions on the survey almost assume that they sort of said, would your office allow this? Would your office allow? And it sort of implied that there might be sort of a piecemeal office by office approach. Although I would say, you know, thinking on that back on that now, listening to the chairman this morning. That sounds less likely to me that it's going to be an office by office approach to sort of you know capital access. I mean, again, access to the office might is certainly going to be controlled by members. But if you can't get into the capital it doesn't really matter anyway.
0: I mean, he sounded pretty, you know, I heard him saying that they were really, very much talking about an appointment only kind of model. yeah. So that means that the implication of that would be that they are not going to close the capital off completely. and 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 Chairman Garen actually, described, you know, one end of the broad range of spectrum that he saw out there of opinion as being, you know, shut the thing, you know, close the capital off to access completely. He seemed to think that that, I took the implication, I mean, that would not happen. But what it sounds to me is like if it's an appointment only system in an office, there's going to be there's going to have to be some way of filtering people at the door in which you walk in. And that's a that's a technology issue. That's another technology issue. Right.
1: Well, I mean at its at its basis it's a technology issue. I mean at its at its most Well in real, execution,
0: it, yeah. I mean, right,
1: in execution. I mean what you're talking about in its most real sense and you're already you know, you're already talking about this, but this idea that, you know, not as though access in and of itself isn't a major resource here, but what it becomes is it becomes a really clear and obvious commodity as there are only so many hours in the day and only so many blocks. Right. To have meetings, which which become a lot easier to avoid, honestly. I mean, if you think about it, if you well, can't get into right you know, <laughs> this,
0: I mean, this is not a you know, I mean, this is like one of those adjustments, like working from home where it sounds like, wow, how's that going to be? But there are definitely going to be some upsides and the upsides are it's going to be easier <laughs> to tell people no. Yeah, yeah. That's right. For, I mean well, I, I think all well, things be, being that's, equal, that's, if you're if you're a member, it's gonna be easier to tell well, people. Well I was gonna
1: now. say that's that's one reason number one, it's gonna be easier to tell people
0: now. <laughs> right. right. And so Among and so in terms of what's interesting to me, I mean, I think that it affects the quantity of input and what the you know that you know, that's not gonna happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Right. So what kinds of responses do you see to that from the people that are seeking access? Right. And and writ large. Right. So does that mean increase, you know, new means of tech, you know, increase use of technology? I mean, look, you know, it's already a, uh, you know, a mark of access to, you know, have members cell phone numbers in your contact list. Right. For example. (laughs) Yeah. For example. All right. So, you know. My guess is, you know, what's gonna happen with, you know, different kind of spaces that are outside of the Capitol. Right. And so do you, you know, is one effect being that, you know, there's a wholesale attempt to drive people out of the building, right? <laughs> In a sense. Right. Right. So if you can't go to them, can you get them to come to you? And if it's not them, is it their staff? Which is, you know. Already, you know a precedent out there in terms of contact. So, you know I'm interested in how all those mechanisms and all those linkages and how those networks adapt Yeah, you know, given the you know, the 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 change in the rules Well,
1: yeah, I'd say I mean, you know in in like a really you know in a meta sense I mean the value of the time resource has gone up significantly and the and the actual transaction costs have become a lot more Expensive and the question is who who can who can bear it or figure out ways? Around it, right?
0: Right. And so, you know, and so then, you know, we've talked about, you know, I mean, I, I think the other institutional question is kind of tied up in this question of what the agenda looks like. And, I you know, we want to talk in a little more detail about the agenda. But I do think that before you even think about the specifics of the agenda, there's kind of the institutional question of, you know, does this hobble the legislature or not? Right. In yeah. some ways. Right. I mean. And, and this could be, you know, a self hobbling, if you will. I mean, well, it could yeah. be that people say, hey, look, sorry, we just can't do much this time. And, you know, right. there's there's the micro level we've been talking about. It's almost like, you know, the micro political economy of this where members are going, hey, this is pretty great to be able to, like, you know, not have to talk to people, you know, make right. for it to be easier to not talk to people I don't want to talk to because they can't catch me in the hall, you know they can't drop in they have to have an appointment there's only so many appointments i have all these ways of of filtering out input from sources i don't want to have input from or don't want right. to have contact with but at the macro level you know at the more you know at least up up to the next level of of analysis there's the question of you know does the legislature then in some way Does that make them more active or less active, more effective, less effective? Does it you know, how does it affect their balance, you know, the balance of power between the legislative and the executive branches, which has been an obviously a very dynamic kind of institutional question in Texas for the last, you know, 10, 15 years as we've had a couple of successive governors empowered in part by partisanship in the state and, and Republican partisan advantages, but not entirely by that, working to strengthen the, the position of the executive branch vis-a-vis the legislature.
1: Well, and, and especially, you know, and then, you know, that that dynamic that you're talking about, that's long term, supercharged under the pandemic, Right. Yeah. Is normally, I mean, this is the governor's responses to disasters and it's one thing where you're talking about like a regionally isolated hurricane or, or let's say a mass shooting at a, at a particular school. But when you're talking about something that affects not only the entire state and country, but also obviously has impact the, the economy and everything else. I mean, you know, I mean, I think this is a very important question here, which is, you know, to what extent does the legislature want to take on, you know, or have their say in more of uh, in more of this discussion? Than they've had. And I, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if the answer is they really want to get involved or whether the answer is they're actually happy to hang back and let Abbott, you know, hang on to this. And it's, and you're right. I mean, there's this other piece that overlaps with this, which is, you know, how much is their, their own, the, the constraints they place on themselves, whether real or imagined, you know, relate to this, this relationship. And it's, uh, it's a pretty open question, I would say, right? I mean,
0: Well, it's an open question because I don't, I don't think that there is a I don't think there's a consensus among the legislators about what the what the proper position is, right? And so, you know, and and it doesn't it doesn't I mean, obviously there's a partisan difference all things being equal. Republicans are probably more comfortable with the governor having a lot of lat- latitude than our Democrats. Well, that's daddy all daddy has things a lot of being money. equal. But <laughs> but you know, we know, you know, anybody that's gotten this far in this podcast and we both know that there are both Republicans and Democrats who feel, you know, very strongly that the government, that the governor has overstepped during the pandemic and mm-hmm. that the legislature has not lived up to their responsibilities. Um or you know yeah. or at least has not been you know at the very least has not been consulted enough in these kinds of decisions and there are you know points of disappointment of disagreement about that and the point being not that that's a you know entirely or you know automatically legitimate position but that that position is not just a partisan position
1: yeah you know, this isn't an institutional question, but it's just sort of an institutional feature that I've been thinking about as we've been talking about this, which is, you know, this is really where you feel the pressure of the hundred and forty day session every other year. I mean, you feel this every time around this time. I mean, this starts to happen and yeah. it ramps up and it ramps up. Everybody who's experienced this knows what the calendar looks like and feels like. But I think in a moment like this where there's you know, we know I mean, we'll get to this now. I mean, we, we already know a lot about what the agenda is gonna look like and it's and it's ugly. You know, I mean, yeah. there's some some major issues sitting out there. So this would have been a hard session no matter what. But the fact that you know, I mean, this point here that there's all of this you know potentially pent up uh, demand, and I'm not and when I say demand, I mean generally it could be from voters, it could be from legislators or whatever for legislative action and to have a role in the state's response to the pandemic. You know, we've been waiting for it now for you know we're going to be have been waiting for a year by the time they actually get their bite at the apple. And so it does, you know, I think add a lot of extra, uh, you know, I would say tension probably yeah. going to the session, you know, that maybe would be there with a more regular meeting body. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the governor plays that and that kind of get, you know, and that is kind of a, you know, I mean, you were, you know, you were raising the point, which I hadn't thought of before we came into this. So I'm crediting you, even though I'm going to jump oh. the gun on it, but the, you know, I mean what do the governor's emergency items look like and how covid related are they when the legislature opens in an environment where the legislature you know who knows you know how much they're going to be able to meet you know not only just what rules are they going to settle on but you know when the when the when the legislature convenes it's very likely that it's going to be in the midst of probably a post christmas you know, uh, uh, outbreak.
1: Yeah. You know, and I think in, in
0: le- unless everybody's habits completely changed than what we've seen well, thus far, which I, I never I, bank on, you know, early January is going to look, you know, pretty ugly. It's probably going to look well, about like it looks, you know, now, if not a little worse. Well, and based on what we've seen thus
1: far from the public, there's very little reason to believe that the public reactions toward the pandemic are going to shift dramatically. I mean, unless I get it, unless, unless we start having outdoor morgues, like outside of Texas's cities that are on right. the news every night, it's hard to imagine people's, you know, sort of orientations towards the pandemic, you know, shifting too dramatically so that even if the governor does go and put some sort of a COVID related emergency item on the agenda, you know, I mean, what does that even mean? Are you talking about shoring up healthcare resources? Or are you talking about helping, you know, let's say small business owners weather the pandemic through, you know, less restrictions because it's not gonna be money,
0: right? Well, and, and speaking of the you know. agenda and speaking of the, The institutional trajectories we're we're going to be talking about, you know, it could be clarifying, you know, their, you know, the 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 governor's line and the line of many, or at least, you know, many of his allies, that localities don't, you know, don't have much latitude in this. And I would not be I would not be shocked if, you know, the emergency item wasn't, you know, something that said clarifying, you know, the limits on local authority. (laughs) You know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right? But
1: it's funny, you know, that, that, makes a, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I, and I, could, and I could see that. And just to, and also, just to link this back to what you said before, that's also obviously not a right now thing. This is something that's been going on for the last number of right. sessions, if not before that, in terms of the relationship between, you know, the state government and the local governments. You know, but I also think, you know, that's a possibility you could see that, you know, what I wonder is, is how does that get navigated if that's the case, Given the fact that the governor has been the one who has sort of utilized the disaster declaration declarations and his authority to such extensive ends over the counties yeah. during the pandemic, yeah, when I, when right. I, when I, in relation to this, uh, this, this question about you know, again, the legislative branch and the executive branch. I mean, there are bills that will. I mean, you know, just yeah, they're already election. there. Drew Springer filed an election-related bill, I believe, it was Drew Springer that would basically say the governor can't, because of a disaster declaration, right. change the early voting period. Yeah, for there's example. yeah,
0: there's a handful of those bills, and and I was probably being not not specific enough when I said you know clarifying. I mean, it it mm-hmm. would be more specific than yeah. you know yeah, well, it would be more like imposing limits on if that was to happen. I mean, I think you're right; that won't be anything immediate. But I mean, you know, this is a good time to remember our basic point. It's you know it's. We've been doing this long enough that it's becoming, you know, one of the evergreens, you know, to point out that, you know, emergency item in the constitutional language in in this constitutional setting, is a technical term of art. It's not <laughs> literally about an emergency per se. Right. There have been many non-emergent things, uh, uh, items put on 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 the list by governors over the years. So, but you know, we're talking but about. But it's going to be harder
1: to do that in this session. I mean, just just. I mean, just if you think about the idea of just putting up, let's say, a purely political item that's more about you know posturing, I think it's going to be pretty hard to do that in a session like this, where you know, if you do only list, let's say, three or four items, and let's say one of them is some red meat issue, whatever you know, for for Republicans in the state, you know, given the limited session, given the legislature hasn't been in session, given all that's on their plate, you know, I'd be surprised, but we'll see. I'd say
0: put a pin in that, okay, (laughs) because. You know, I will be shocked if we don't see something about policing and budgets in the emergency agenda.
1: Well, let's talk about the agenda. Let's just
0: get, let's get to that. So <laughs> I mean, can- I mean, not in the agenda, but in as an emergency item. Yeah, I could see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's fair. Yeah, no, that's I'd so. That. Okay. All <laughs> right. So let's, but let's talk about the agenda. So are the obvious things on the agenda that are the big, is, you know, the budget. So the comptroller, I thought, did a pretty. <laughs> Pretty, not to be in the tank for the guy, but a pretty masterful job yesterday of sending a clear message without a lot of detail.
1: Yeah, it's not as bad as we think, but it's not good, but I'll tell you later.
0: Right, (laughs) yeah. Um, You know, it's not as bad as it was looking, but it's still bad. (laughs) But, you know, stay tuned. (laughs) Yeah. You know, pretty good you know, pretty, 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 pretty interestingly done. And I'll right. be interested to see what the, what the actual, you know, what those numbers look like, but we know enough that, you know, based on what he said, you know, the numbers they did release about, about sales tax, and I don't want to, people know these numbers a lot better than I do. And some of them, at least one of them, I know, list seems to listen to this podcast, but it does look like the swing from, is still going to be pretty severe from what was expected to be a more than $4 billion dollar. Carry over to being in the red by an amount, and this is the amount that's still a little unfixed, but is going to be plenty. It looks like. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as of June, he was projecting a swing of, depending on you know, I think how you looked at it, you know, between about seven and a half and ten billion, right?
1: Right. And it depends on whether you count the money they didn't spend from the last session and, you know, that. Well, right. And which they always do without including the money that they also didn't spend from the last session. Right. And there's
0: well, right, because they roll that over. I mean, that's one of the big fictions of the balanced budget here. But then there's also and um, John Engel did a good job of reporting on this at Austin's local KXAN station. There's also this money that the governor is still sitting on that has to be spent by year's end. That is federal care money, CARES Act money, or oh. CARE Act money. That are um, we going to be
1: getting checks?
0: Yeah, that they're going to do something with them. You know, and, and one of the things that we've seen that I think people have not probably discussed a lot, but that you know, as I've been working on some stuff related to federalism, is the idea that they have. You know, taking some of the money for education that was granted through the CARE Act, but used it to shore up existing shortfalls rather than to—oh no, really? yeah, I know. It's I know it's it's hard to imagine that that would happen. No. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of money still in play here. You know, and, and the situation made worse. I mean, I, I it's hard for me not to imagine, given what we saw during past budget shortfalls during. You know, the the housing bubble burst and the budget shortfall after that, the two sessions in which we saw big budget shortfalls. And what we saw in the short run just in the last few months with the CARES Act, Mm -hmm. that there aren't a lot of people sitting around still praying for more money for the federal government and knowing that, you know, something may well be there, but we don't know what and that that's a factor in terms of the of Mm -hmm. the uh, the change in presidential administrations. And, uh, you know, that. It's a pretty big unknown. The other, the other issue, though, so you know, obviously the budget is a is a huge problem here, from day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is obviously this is a redistricting session, right? And the Republican part, uh, Republicans managed to maintain a majority in both houses fairly easily. So, I, so it should be, out. so it should be no problem. It should be easy. Uh, and we are going to have a redistricting, <laughs> you know, session in which uh, there's going to be a lot of adjustments to be made. Oh, shall we say? <laughs> okay. Okay. That's nice. You know, from the Republican perspective.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, you could say that. I mean, a lot of population growth, but a lot of concentrated population growth in yeah, Texas major metro areas. So it's going to be interesting to see how they handle that.
0: But we do know that they, you know, however they handle it, they will largely be handling it on their own. Mm-hmm. And with less federal supervision than they've had since since right. there's been a Republican I mean, majority in the state as a result of, of Shelby v. Holder and the, the uh, declaration and the, the invalidation of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, we should also point out that that, you know, it's not like the Voting Rights Act doesn't, you know, doesn't matter anymore. There are still there's still, you know. Possibilities for litigation. There's, you know, the, there are other elements of the Voting Rights right. Act are there. But Texas it will be redistricting for the first time in, you know, a few decades without federal's, without a, a federal pre-check of the maps.
1: Do you think it'll end up in court?
0: Uh, I I think it may end up in court. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so there that, will it's... there will still be court battles, given on how the you know, no right. matter how you know how this is approached, I I strongly suspect. Right. We have some friends we should have on the podcast that, that could talk about that. Oh, yeah. And so redistricting will be there. Now, redistricting is kind of, you know, that's, you know, that's been assumed was going to be there. Um, You know, I think there's still some question about when we're actually going to get the census data. And, you know, there may actually be some some court decisions affecting that between now and then. So those are the things that really are there have to be done. I think there is a there, there, there was an expectation out there a few weeks ago, I think, and I, I haven't really talked to people about it recently or read much about it lately, that a special session was almost certainly going to be required for redistricting, even mm-hmm. even, even without the – in part because of the delivery of the data, you know, in part because of, you know, all the other things going on in terms of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we'll see. Um, but I think there's there are some contingencies there. And then below that, there's, you know, a bunch of other things. We've mentioned the COVID response. Right. And it does seem hard to believe that the legislature can come into town, pass a budget, say in some idealized universe, idealized Mm -hmm. for some people anyway. Draw some maps, push them through the process, get them out. And say, okay. Slash the budget. (laughs) Yeah. You know, pass the budget and then say, okay, we're done here. Yeah, that's hard. You know, br- brush it all from their hands and, and adjourn sine die without doing anything about that, that is explicitly targeted that they can go back to their districts and go out in public and say, we did something to address COVID. Now, that means that there are subsets of other perennial issues there. Education, I think, being a huge one. Yep. Um, I think there's, you know, obviously a huge discussion going on about You know, the weaknesses in the education system that have been both created, created, you know, new new weaknesses that have been created, other older weaknesses that have been exposed by the covid pandemic
1: Mm -hmm.
0: uh, in terms of education. And, you know, I think all things being equal, had we not had the pandemic, there was likely to be a lot more action in education as a follow up to what happened in twenty nineteen.
1: When you phrase it that way, it'll be it'll be
0: really interesting
1: to see how the education portion of the agenda is framed as we get closer to the session. You know, what, what, you know, are we, you know, what, what kind of, you know, problems that were caused or problems that are more apparent now get talked about and what doesn't right at this point. Yeah. Or, I mean, the other side of this also just says, you know, in a tough budget year, given the share of the budget that is made up of education, you know, are they really able to do much more, you know, besides programmatically when I say, you know, are they able to do much more from a funding perspective? I mean, it's gonna be very difficult, especially after last session.
0: Yeah. You know, and healthcare is another wild card here, you know, in two aspects, I think. One, in this context, healthcare is a is a subset of the COVID response
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and the economic fallout. We know that, the, you know, from the, the data that we've seen so far that, but, you know, more Texans are without healthcare. You know, there are a lot more Texans without employment, a lot more Texans without healthcare. A lot, yeah. healthcare bills are going it's, up for people that are getting sick.
1: It's, it's literally the same thing you just said about education, though, right? I mean, the, the problems yeah. with the healthcare system, you know, that were already there are much more manifest and much more apparent to people, but also we are going to be dealing with the consequences of COVID, both in terms of, you know, the distribution of vaccines, follow-up medical care for people over time. This is, you know, this is going to be a long and expensive problem. And it's to say, again, it's a, it's a similar sort of set of problems to education in some
0: ways. Right. So, I mean, so there's one bucket, which is how and to what extent can... Can and will the legislature address the major issues Mm -hmm. that, you know, in addition to the ones that, you know, they have to address and the things that are always perennial. And then going back really to what we were talking about, these institutional questions and the input of the process in the process, then, you know, what about everything else that is the nuts and bolts in the normal business of the legislature? What about the sector specific bills? What about, you know, all of the things that the trade associations and, you know, the people that, you know, are, you know, sort of 90, you know, the the old saw about, you know, 90% of the, you know, business of the legislature being about business, right. You know, large and small, you know, how much of this gets done. And if you're a participant in the process, you know, what is it, you know, what, what is the equilibrium? Once we see what's going on in the legislature, will there even be a, an equilibrium you know my sense is it's just going to be a at that level you know as we talk about it and as we've kind of parsed this out thinking about what was in the panel this morning the conversations you and i have had you know i just think it's going to be a chaotic war of all against all well, see, you say know in you a very unstable are, environment in a very uncertain one can you say a little bit more what you mean about an equilibrium i mean equilibrium between what and what well i mean you know i mean to my mind you know the Is there an equilibrium in which everybody could agree and say, you know, and and we've been hearing some of this. I mean, this idea that, you know, we're hearing more about this in the Senate than in the House. That There will be a limited number of bills that will be heard. Right. And, you know, members will be urged strongly to, you know, to prioritize a smaller number of bills for this session. You know, there will be fewer committee meetings. There will be just you know, that there will just be an agreed upon reduction in traffic and everybody should cool their jets. So the equilibrium I'm envisioning there is that, you know, everybody kind of says, okay, our strategy is whether, you know, and and I think it's true probably from both the legislative and from (laughs) the interest group and and input perspective, social Mm -hmm. input perspective, that everybody agrees, okay, we're just, you know, there's just going to be less traffic. Well, it seems to me that the moment you agree to that, People immediately begin to defect and try to game it and get their own things done on the margin, right. whether you're a well, legislator or a member of an interest group.
1: There, but there's so few cars on this road. Why don't I just hop on?
0: Exactly. Right. right? And so, you know, I I, I think that there's going to be, you know, whatever that agreement comes to at point, you know, some point in time, there's going to be enormous pressure to to try to, you know, game the system, if you will game, whatever, I put it this way, game, whatever agreement is made. And that's going to, that's a very hard, you know, I think, you know, kind of economic dynamic to overcome.
1: And and I would be remiss if I didn't mention racism.
0: Right. And so in terms of the other things, then, you know, so then we've got two other big things then that are looming that, you know, I think going into this, we would have expected we're going to be on the agenda. And that's, Race and policing, and you know that kind of came up earlier, and that is going to, you know, that is going to be on the table at yeah, some point.
1: Yeah, I agree with that.
0: And it's gonna, and it's gonna get, and it's gonna get fought about, and you know, it's going to be very hard, I think, for both Democrats and Republicans, for both left and right, to not, to not have some kind of item. You know to, to not address these issues in some ways we've already got bills that have been you know a cluster of bills from democrats that you know are aimed at racial justice and addressing problems with policing you know you just had republicans campaign many on you know supporting the blue and accusing the you know the democrats of wanting to literally defund the police I, I just think it's going to be hard for that to not get addressed on yeah. both sides. And it's a wild card, you know, and I, I think, you know, look, there is a—and and by addressed, I mean discussed. Whether you actually see something passed, you know, I think that's dependent on all these other things. But it's going to be—I I think it's it's on the yeah. agenda.
1: Do, do, do you see it make it out of committee?
0: I mean— yeah, you know, I, I think we see some hard. I, I, I think we're going to see at least one or two hard floor debates on these issues at some point. I think it's going to be
1: really interesting if they. But but but, but I, to... I
0: say that I should say we'll have to see what the committee chairman look like, particularly in the House.
1: I think the juxtaposition, if if the House or Senate goes along with sort of Abbott's initial gambit of basically, you know, make it impossible for localities to, you know, decrease their police budgets. I think the optics of that are going to be very strange in what's a tight building session in which, you know, they're trying to cut their budgets at the state level. And also just from the sense of like as a conservative legislature, the idea that, you know, there's this one budget item that can never go down. I think it'll be very easy for Democrats, especially locally, to start saying, Oh, so really what you want us to do is is cut, you know, mental health services. You want us to cut all the other stuff that we're actually saying we want to fund. So right. it'll be interesting. It's a sort of a separate discussion for another day, but I mean but it speaks to the fact that like a lot of political messaging is gonna be around that. And so again, in, in what's gonna be already a hard session, you know, that's gonna be it's gonna be an ugly issue, I imagine.
0: Right. And I think the other piece that, you know, we have to, you know, at least consider whether, you know, anybody does anything about this. And I, you know, kind of go back and forth on this. I, I don't have I don't think I have a clear idea how this looks. is, you know, sort of election integrity and voting reform. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, there, was a, a, there were a pair of interesting kind of yin yang stories in the Texas Tribune by Karen Brooks Harper in the last few days, you know. Day one was sort of, you know, Democrats' eye possibilities for election reform. And then the follow-up story was, you know, Republicans also looking at election reform, you know, and underline the fact that reform meant very different things for different people in ways that are very familiar, you know, to us. And that, you know, and and I, I still wonder if there is not some potential for some kind of horse trading on that, you know, given that. Republicans just very successfully increased turnout, which was kind of the the hook of the day one story. Right. Um, Right. But the hook of the day two story was that there are a lot of bills being off that have already been uh, filed that are, you know, within the more familiar pattern uh, of, you know, Republican legislators making it harder to vote. I mean or certainly yep. not doing anything to make it easier to, you know, making sure that you can't make it easier to vote. Um, you know, I, I would probably err in the direction of the status quo on that, but I think there is probably a, you know, a tiny bit of space for, well, you know, a little bit for a little bit of both.
1: I mean, not, you know, it does speak to the bigger question, you know, in some ways of, you know, what is the interpretation among elites of this election? You know, both in terms of, you know, the election in and of itself and where it sits on the trajectory of Texas's, you know, electoral system going forward. And I think, you know, to your point, I think that's part of why we don't know. I mean, if if the 2021 dynamic looks like the 2019 dynamic, it could be that, you know, voting reform and integrity and some sort of an omnibus package with horse trading is actually one way that that, you know, members of both parties can demonstrate, you know, their commitment to sort of, you know, the seriousness of the integrity of you know not not necessarily the integrity of the election process But people's belief in the integrity of the election system, which clearly needs shoring up And if that's the dynamic again this idea that hey, we're in a competitive system and we all need to look good There's possibility if the idea here is that, you know, hey Republicans have held the line Democrats had high turnout and they couldn't do anything with it. So, you know what to the victor goes the spoils It's gonna look very different.
0: Yeah, I think that's and right. we just don't know that yet um you know, I, I think to step back then as we as we wind up, there's a lot more we could talk about. here. There's a lot of wild cards here, obviously, mm-hmm. um, as we try, as we step back. And, you know, and what we're really talking about is, you know. What are the sources of uncertainty? Yeah, <laughs> you know, as, as, as we look at the session and there are a lot of them, you know, in the immediate run, you know, we don't you know, as we've seen earlier, what's the state of the pandemic going to be in January when the legislature goes into session you know they you know like many things and look we saw this internally back in the spring at ut frankly um Mm -hmm. you know you can plan a lot as things are ramping up and then you know some of those plans work out and some of them don't and you know it's a very uncertain environment um you know what is the federal aid that comes out of the biden administration going to look like Mm -hmm. Uh, what are those policies going to look like you know and and that broaches a whole bunch of internal questions at the federal level, you know, that ultimately would like land on Mitch McConnell's doorstep, I would argue, but we'll see, you know, what is the timing of the vaccine? You know, we're, we're really focused on January and February right now. Well, you know, what are things looking like in April and May, which is really when the action's really going to start. I mean, there's a lot of discussion now, but them Mm -hmm. gaveling in and, and look, this is not that different from what usually happens in the session. Not a lot happens for a month, mm-hmm. you know. Frankly, there's not, you know, there's not a ton of hearings, you know, in the House. You know, it takes a while for committee, you know, for committees to be even be put together in the House, et cetera. Maybe they're working on that ahead of time. Um, you know, what happens? And, and this was another interesting point about Chairman Guerin's discussion. What happens if there's an outbreak in a in, if there's an outbreak in the legislature? How much yeah. shuts down? A lot of that's going to depend on what rules they adopt and just how much. You know, contingency is built into that. Um, it's interesting, you know, Chairman Guerin made it clear that they're thinking about that, that they're kind of assuming it's going to happen to some degree or another. So I guess, you know, one thing that I would, you know, that I think we want to end on probably is that, you know, two things. One, you know, so how does all this play into these established trajectories we've already been talking about? All that stuff is not going to stop. You know, right. the governor is still going to be trying to strengthen the executive branch Uh, Republican leadership is still going to see a lot of incentives on kicking around the cities and the, you know, the cities and lesser degree county government. Um, The state is still going to be growing and we're still going to have all these big population shifts and and generating a lot of problems, you know, that grow out of that population growth and its nature from, Mm -hmm. you know, healthcare to a whole range of other things. And I guess that, you know, just because we're trying to not talk about the pandemic at the state level. And by we, frankly, I mean the governor, who has said very little about the pandemic for the last month as things have gotten worse, uh, doesn't mean that it's not gonna have big policy and institutional implications. And I think, you know, one has to wonder as we talk about the uncertainty of the timing of a vaccine, about the intensity of outbreaks in the winter, the governor isn't playing something of a waiting game and, and hoping that by the end of the session, this is really things have, have, you know, between a vaccine and between the, you know, the national, the natural outbreak of the pandemic and the politics of public attention, mm-hmm. you know, barring the kind of grim disaster you were alluding to, you know, possibly happening earlier, um, you know, does it work? You know, has the governor, does the, can the governor kind of wait this out and assume that people as part of the Texas model will factor in the human costs and move on?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I just can't help but thinking about the optics of a Texas legislature that is, you know, introducing plexiglass, you know, potentially testing everyone, you know, upon entry to the building, you know, maybe requiring vaccinations and, you know, limiting, you know, again, basic like sort of.
0: Constitutional actually, safeguards. acknowledging the horror of it all, well, you can put that threats. actually,
1: you know, and you have that on the one hand, but you know, on the other hand, you have a public posture towards the state, which is, you know, keep calm and carry on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, go to work if you can, right? And I, you know, I. You know, it's one thing. I mean, the thing about the one thing about the Texas legislative session is, again, I do think the pressure of the 140 days is really you can really feel it now in a way that I think it's there every time. But like even more so right now because of all this uncertainty we've been talking about. Um, But also, you know, we have this concentrated moment of government in Texas every two years. And the idea of looking at all of these people taking the pandemic very seriously in their own professional lives on a daily basis Relative to the public pronouncements, you know that basically we're not shutting down the economy We're not, you know, basically having any further measures People just need to basically behave themselves under the rules and and we're just going to go until we've we've cleaned this up I wonder how long that's going to be okay And I think it's probably going to be okay, you know Again from a political standpoint the ramifications of it But it does create a certain amount of exposure in your messaging and a crack in it
0: And I think it does and I think the ironic thing here is the one thing that could get them over the hump is the thing that got state government over the hump in the wake of the economic tra- crash. And that's federal funding and federal programs, many yeah. of which go directly to localities and bypass state government when they can. And I believe that we will see, you know, if they can get it through the Senate, we'll see a return to that in the Biden administration, all of which remains to be seen. So with that, Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being here, Josh. Yeah. Thanks to our crew in the College of Liberal Arts and Liberal Arts Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks to you for listening. I guess this is where you really say, be safe and stay well. And we will be back next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.